This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub 70 podcast uh, noted architect Tom Doak to uh, the episode today. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Nice to be here. My first question is. Um, if you could pick between doing a restoration on a great classic golf course like a Yeamans Hall or a Shore Acres versus building, you know, a course from new, at this point in your career, do you kind of find, you know, one a little bit more satisfying than the other or any preference of, of kind of taking the classics or kind of starting a new, essentially? Oh, definitely new courses. I mean, that's really kind of always been the thing. I think from I think most architects would would much rather build a course from scratch if they have a chance. And, you know, the reason you see so many restorations today is because there aren't many people building new golf courses. <laughs> you know, for, for me, you know, it was, I mean, it was an honor. It's been an honor to work on so many great golf courses or the older great golf courses and, uh, you know, be trusted by those memberships, but creatively it's a, it's an entirely different process. And, uh, you know, most of us in this business want to create. When you're looking at a at a at a new project and um, you got a plan in front of you, is it is it more difficult to work with a huge budget, but you you got a, a, an owner that might be a little difficult, demanding, or is it more difficult to have a constrained budget, but you may have an owner who's like totally in with you on the collaboration and gets the vision, and and you guys are like completely on the same page? Is one more difficult than the other? I mean, honestly, I don't, I never worry about the budget too much at the stage of laying out a golf course or designing it. You know, most of my courses, you know, if you've got a good piece of land to build on, most golf courses should be relatively cheap to build. Obviously, if it's on tougher soils or rock, um, that's going to cost more. If it's on, you know, if it's in a place where it, every living thing needs irrigation that's going to cost more and if there's not a good fresh water supply handy that's going to cost more you know but those those are all kind of independent of the the actual design and the and the the routing of the golf course um so to me it's more about do you know would i rather have a good piece of land or a client with money and i'd rather have a good piece of land good way of answer yeah it's exactly where i'm kind of getting at is yeah the, the, the having the basis for where you can look at a great piece of land going yes we can make this happen there you would yeah you take that over having unlimited funds to work with but it's going to be a tough piece to to make it to the level that you're comfortable making it at right yeah and if i've got a client who's if, if, if i think the client's going to be really uncooperative i'm probably not taking that job even if it is a good piece of land <laughs> you know if you can't if you I tell all clients at the beginning of the process, you know, at some point you're going to have to trust me. <laughs> um, you know, we can't, we can't plan out everything in perfect detail, what we're going to do. Even in restorations, you know, you, you spend all this time on master plans and stuff, but, but ultimately when you get out there, 
you find little details, you know, you're just you're seeing it in much more detail than you do in the planning process when you're actually building something. So, you know, you should be taking those details and running with them. And you did. the last thing you want is the client telling you, no, 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 that wasn't in the plan. You can't do it that way. You know, you know, I, I mean, I've spent my time training under Mr. Dye and he was very much that way. He didn't even want to give the client a plan for fear that would happen. When looking at the routing of a golf course, do you think that's one of the aspects when you build a new course that golfers don't understand exactly the nuance of that or how difficult it is when it just seamlessly goes right? And is it one of the, the, the tougher aspects of designing a golf course? I kind of think about the project you're working on with Zach Blair and down at Tree Farm, and you know he thought he had it, but he wasn't quite comfortable. And I read that you know he, he brings you in to work with him. It's like eye-opening to him. It was he said it's better you know, the expertise you have. And is it one of those things like for us playing, it just comes together, but it takes, it looks so natural and easy, but is that a tough part to make it look like it comes off that seamless? I think routing the golf course is the toughest part of the job. And, and, you know, I think even, you know, not only the average golfer, but I, I even think a lot of architects don't spend enough time on it and aren't, you know, don't give it enough weight. You know, the, the problem with modern architecture is, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, we started having the kinds of earth-moving equipment and budgets that you could create something out of nothing. And once you can do that, you know, it's easy to overlook these little features that could be, you know, the key feature of a golf hole, but, you know, in a lot of architects today are more likely to just blow them up without ever seeing them in order to create something that they've dreamed up while sitting in their office. Um, I've always tried to be on the opposite side of that. And, and to do that, the most important thing is to put the golf holes in the right places and make them fit together. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of like solving a puzzle and, you know, if you look at the New York times Sunday crossword and you've never done it before, it's daunting as hell. The more times you do it and fight your way through it, the easier it gets. And that's the same for designing a golf course. But, but the truth is not many people, even not many architects today, get, get a chance to do those puzzles all that often. You know, I build a couple of golf courses a year. Um, I might work on plans for a couple more. But, you know, I've gotten good at those puzzles over time. That's kind of how my brain works. I've, I've always been good at puzzles of all kinds. Um, but yeah, for somebody just starting out wanting to, wanting to do it, there's some things that they can see and they'll latch onto right away, but they don't know everything they're missing. Yeah. And it's, uh, It'll be, it'll, it's, I have to imagine it's one of those things, like you said, it just takes, I mean, obviously I've never done it, but time and experience and like, you know, bringing that experience to the table and, and you, I'm guessing at this point you can almost see how it's going to happen even, you know, compared to probably where you were at 20 years ago, I'd have to imagine I mean, the experience, the time, the expertise, it just grows as you do more golf courses. I know it's difficult, but it has to be Absolutely. a little bit easier for you at this juncture. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, if you give me a topo map of a, new site somewhere i'll find a couple of good holes on it in like five minutes <laughs> but but actually finding a bunch of them that fit together you have no idea how long that's going to take you know there's 
you know, so there's, you know, there's, I mean, every site has its own challenges in a way, and I'm not just talking about what's there, but, you know, like a lot of times I've been given like huge pieces of ground to work with, you know, 400 acres, 600 acres, you know, the Rock Creek in Montana, they owned 80,000 acres. And it's like, where should we put the golf course? <laughs> you know, I was there three times before I ever set foot on the site where the golf course is now. Um, but, you know, so that's one kind of puzzle. It's like you have so many options. How can you narrow this down, and, you know, into finding 18 holes? And then there's the other side of the box where you have a relatively small site and everything's pretty close together and there's certain you know there might be wetlands on it or some other things that you can't change and you know there's probably not a lot of options for something like that but trying to find the best solution is sometimes really hard you know you're always making trade-offs yeah that would that would like I, I could see where both sides of that would be in their own rights uh, a challenge um and you kind of brought this up earlier, and this was one of my questions I had: is where did golf course architecture go wrong? Because you know, Golden Age is still—it's my favorite style. If you're looking at you know courses not from the 50s or 60s as much as from the actual Golden Age of Rainer and, and those designers from that era, and it looks like we're kind of coming back to that a little bit with a little bit more width off the tee and some variety of you know, for, of strategy of how to play a golf course, especially one that might not be for the PGA Tour, but that you might be, you know, designing for members and and to give them the options to play different types of shots under different conditions and having those, you know, strategy brought into the golf course. Where did it kind of go wrong, in your opinion? And do you think my statement's correct that we're kind of golf courses that are kind of, say, in the last 10 years are, are, are bringing back some of those characteristics that I love about Golden Age architecture? Uh, well, I think it's more than 10 years. I think the last 20 or 25 years, there have been architects trying to bring back more of the golden age stuff. Um, you know, maybe that architecture went wrong is too strong a term. What really happened was right after the golden age, we hit the depression and then World War II on the back end of that. And there was 15 years where hardly anyone could make a living at designing golf courses and almost no golf courses were being built. So all of the accumulated knowledge and experience that we just talked about kind of flew the coop. And by the 1950s, when the economy was booming again, you hardly had anyone around who had experience from back in the 20s. You know, Robert Trent Jones worked with Stanley Thompson a little bit, and that put him at a distinct advantage over everybody else. But then, you know, he had a ton of work all over the place and he didn't have much time to spend on any particular project. And, you know, honestly, that's not a lot different than the Golden Age architects. I mean, Mackenzie built a lot of golf courses that he didn't see very much of when they got built because he was too busy going from Australia to the U.S. to England and back. Um, so he, you know, he made a plan. He found a really good associate to carry it out, and he left them to it, and he might have checked in once or twice along the way. Um, and so half the reason a lot of those great courses turned out so well was, you know, Mackenzie had Perry Maxwell or Alex Russell in Australia or Robert Hunter in California watching those projects day to day, making sure that they turned out great. 
And then when he got to the 1950s, guys like that were nowhere to be found. So it was almost like the business had to start all over with a new, you know, with all this new stuff of earth moving equipment and everything else. Um, and it took a long time for it to rebuild and that, that knowledge to build back up again, just like it, it did in the early days when they started in 1900, they weren't building great golf courses either. Yeah. We're, yeah, you're right. It took to the 20, I think of golden age, right? The 1920s were late teens, twenties where a lot of those great ones were built. Um, it's interesting how it was fashionable and then is now, like I said, you're actually, you know, correct on the 20 years of the, the new stuff, I guess I should have said, it really feels like it's bringing those elements back. And I personally love seeing it. It's, uh, it's cool to have variety on golf courses and uh, kind of segues into the next uh, segment here of my questions of, of the red course that you designed at Dismal River, um, where I'm lucky enough to get to play it a lot. Love the golf course, been really well received since day one. From an architectural standpoint, when, when you went to build that golf course, what was sort of the, the game plan or kind of from, you know, a thousand feet in the air looking down at it, would you kind of want to bring to life out there? You know, my story out in the sand hill starts a long time before. When I, you know, when I worked for Pete Dye, uh, one of his clients was Dick Young's cap, who was building Firethorn in Lincoln. So I've known Dick for a long time, and you know, I got to see Sandhills Golf Club kind of from the beginning. The first time I went out there and walked it, they had flagged out where the golf holes were going to be and mowed down some prairie grass, but they hadn't built anything yet. So I saw you know, how natural a golf course that was and how little they would have to do to build it. Um, and then a few years after that, I had two suitors about building a new golf course uh, in the Sandhills area. One was Ballyneal and the other was Dismal River. Besides Jack Nicholas, I was one of the, I think I was one of the only people they interviewed for that job. Uh, of course, those guys were, the original developers were kind of, you know, they thought they needed Nicholas's name to sell memberships. So they had me kind of on, I think they were talking to me more on the back burner about doing a second golf course someday, although that group never got that far. Um, but, you know, I kind of used that to, you know, push the Valley Neal people into getting going on their golf courses. Like, you know, if you guys don't do something pretty soon, there's going to be a lot more competition out here and it's going to be really hard to succeed. So, uh, so I built Ballyneal, which was a more rugged site than Sand Hills, and you know I think it's you know most people see them as similar golf courses, but you know I've known Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw for a long time, and you know while we both have similar philosophies on building golf courses, we do really different things. You know we we always go to see each other's work, and you're kind of surprised and laugh like oh, I never would have done that, but but that's sure cool. <laughs> um, so by the time I got the call about working on the red course, the second course at Dismal River, you know, I had a fair amount of experience in the area. Um, and I didn't want to do, I, I wouldn't have wanted to do the golf course if I didn't feel it was going to be really different than Ballyneal and really different than Sandhills. You know, obviously because Sandhills is a close neighbor. Um, and, you know, Bally, you know, Ballyneal is one of my best courses. And I didn't, you know, I don't want to repeat that. I want to do something kind of different. 
And, you know, and then it goes without saying it had to be different than the first course at Dismal River, too. Um, so, you know, that was kind of, those were kind of the driving factors to, to try to figure out a way to build something really different. And from the time I first looked at the map, I, you know, my first thought was what would be different is getting down to the river. None of the other courses do that. Um, and even though Chris Johnston, the client, said, said at the beginning he didn't think he didn't think getting down to the river made sense i sort of ignored that and started looking down there anyway yeah and that's that's that was an interesting part i was going to ask that as well as was the river when you saw that in that kind of valley area always something that you were like yes we are going to incorporate this because like i said it needed to be different than the, the nicholas course on the other side and you had that beautiful backdrop of the river you could kind of play with some holes into that area and make it really unique. So once you saw that from a topography standpoint, you kind of said to yourself, yes, this is this would be a perfect way to sort of put a different stamp on the red course versus different golf courses in that region, I'm assuming. Right. Well, you know, Chris sent me a map, a topo map at the beginning. Um, and, you know, I had been on the property in general once before, with the original guys looking at the first course of Dismal River. And my, you know, so my sense was that the contours there are kind of bigger and broader and hillier than Valley Neal or Sand Hills. Um, and, you know, I think that makes it tougher to fit the holes together. You know, you have to get up a long slope or back down. Um, so, you know, I played around a little bit with trying to figure out 18 holes above the entrance road but i you know i kept getting i kept getting stuck up there you know not finding a good way to get back or just feeling like there are two or three pretty you know just not great holes in the middle of those routings in order to make it work and you know when i played around on holes across the road and going down toward the river there was clearly some great ground down there um you know, the the difficult part of going down there would be getting back up, you know, because you're from the road down to the river is, I don't remember exactly, but it's more than 100 feet of elevation change. So working down close to the river is great, but then trying to find a couple of holes that get you back up that aren't just a slog and a tough climb at the end of the round was going to be really hard. And and then when you when the pieces of that puzzle came together, is it, is it, then it became pretty apparent, like, this is the route, this is how we're going. And then when you saw those last, or laid out those last three finishing holes, which I think are just fantastic, of like 16, that cool little par three, and then you get to 17 and 18. Then did that plan come together where it's like, yes, we can make the finish this way, we can have those holes, it's starting to make sense. And how excited were you to see that kind of come together of how good that finishing stretch is on that golf course? It took a little while to get there. We, we definitely went through two, two or three different iterations. You know, the, the, when I, you know, when I drew golf holes on the map, um, before I spent time on the site, a lot of the things that attracted my eye, you know, it turned out to be way wetter down by the river than I thought. There's a lot of springs close to the river, so you couldn't, you know, it's it's, it's impossible to get right up against the river in very many places and you know, be able to build a fairway that won't be mush. Um, so, you know, we we got the two places we could get the closest, 16 green and 18 green, were kind of high, dry ground and really close to the river. But the rest of it had to be 
up a little higher. Um, so, you know, I, I'd found kind of a good loop for the front nine, which, you know, turned out to be the front eight before you crossed the road. Um, and then, you know, a couple of original versions, um, you know, went down there and then came back up at the end with one or two holes after the 18th hole to get back to, you know, kind of make a figure eight and get back to the first tee. Um, but, you know, that first hole coming back out of the bottom was clearly going to be one of the weakest holes on the golf course. And eventually I suggested, well, you know, why don't we just add a couple more holes out here and do away with that part? You know, what, why do we need to get back to the first tee with the 18th green if after you finish, you're just going to get back in a golf cart and drive a mile back to the clubhouse anyway? Right, exactly. You know, why wouldn't we want to finish at the most dramatic place? And, you know, I had done that once before in one of my earliest courses, Black Forest in Michigan. You know, there was another golf course there, so you know, you could get, you could get the first tee close to the clubhouse, but it was really, there wasn't really enough land to get the first and 18th close to the clubhouse. And it had the same problem. Most of the course was down in a lower valley. So, you know, after like this 15th or 16th hole, you would have had to make a long cart ride back up the hill for the last two holes. And I've always tried to design courses that are walkable and, you know, that just never appealed to me. So, so I said there, like I said at Dismal, why don't we just finish down on the bottom? Um, so I, I had no qualms about doing it, but obviously, you know, most clients aren't used to seeing something like that. Um, Chris was pretty good about accepting it pretty quickly. That, well, yeah, that's certainly a dramatic place to finish, and, and any hole you build after that 18th is going to be kind of a letdown. Yeah, I like it. the 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 last challenge of those those last three holes. I think they're just absolutely fantastic. And I think if you look at people who play the golf course, that's what they always talk about is trying to bring that round of golf home. You know, especially on those last two and even little par three, you gotta you gotta hit a precise golf shot. It's like fun if you got a good round going of like, okay, man, I, you, you gotta hit quality golf shots to finish this thing off. And that challenge uh-huh. of it's just fantastic. It really is. You know, those last three holes are just fantastic. So. Well done there, sir. The other question I was going to ask you on is that fifth hole where you got a par three and a half maybe, or is it a, it's a big boy par three. Um, you know, the tees even for, well, there's really no tees out there and we'll get there, but approximately 240 to 260 on a par three. Do you design a lot of par threes or did that just hole of that length just naturally be there? And the hole is fair because everything kind of funnels to it and the green's big. Like it's a fun hole to play. It's very unique, and, and how did that hole come about of being that length, but yet it, it, it's more intimidating than it actually plays, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's funny when I first when I first started playing with routings of the golf course, I I thought that two of the holes that people would talk about the most were the two par threes up top, the third and the fifth. The third because it's got that incredibly deep pit bunker to the right of the green. Um, and the fifth, because it was, you know, such a long tee shot over that valley to get to the other side. Um, and, you know, I kind of knew, too, that, you know, long par threes are not the most popular holes for the average golfer. I mean, 
you know, they're difficult enough just on sheer length that you can't, you know, it's hard to put in a lot of little cool features around them because, you know, when you're hitting driver to it, you know, you think that's overkill. So, so you wind up playing a big hole over a big yawning valley with in a big deep bunker on the right. Um, but just trying to stay away from that stuff and play to the left and be safe. And maybe if you're lucky, get a, get a kick at the end and get, get it into that green. But, you know, a lot of people are just trying to get up and down from somewhere, somewhere around it. Um, you know, I really like that hole. I think it's one of the best holes of that length that I've ever built. But, you know, there's 50% of golfers, that's that's a beast of a hole. And 50% of the time you're playing it into the wind there, and it's a beast of a hole. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, I think it's, it's you know, and then because if that one's into the wind, then, you know, eight would be downwind. So then you got kind of a makeup. I yeah. love the variety of that where one day it might bite you in the ass, but one the next day, you know, you might be able to hit a, a five wood in there and still kind of hit a little fade and it runs into the green. It's 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 a very fair hole and it's a good test and it's fun. That's what I like about it. It's, a, it's different and it's fun. Um, and it makes the experience of playing the golf course cool. It's, it's, it's something you don't see every day, but for the length of the hole, I think it's just very well designed of, from a fairness standpoint, you can hit it kind of straight and chip it on. And it's, it's not an impossible hole. It's challenging, but it's well thought out. And I just think it makes, you know, it's a very unique part of the golf course to have something like that of that length that you don't see every day, but um, it's an interesting hole. And I, I enjoy playing. I was just curious of the design philosophy of how you kind of saw it and, and, and how you brought it to life. But uh, it's, it's a good one, man. It's a good one. That's out there. I enjoy playing that hole, even into the wind. It's tough, but it's still fair. It's still fair. Well, thank you. I'm glad I built it. I mean, I don't, I honestly don't think about fairness the same way that a lot of low handicap golfers do. You know, I don't care if golfers feel it's unfair sometimes. You know, just like, you know, some people would say it's unfair if they get up on that tee and if the wind is blowing hard in their face and they can't get to the green. It's like, well, how can you build a par three where I can't get to the green? I'm a good player. Um, and to me, it's just, you know, if you keep the golf hole playable for everybody, which means that, you know, all the people that can't get there with that tee shot still have a way to play the hole, then it works even when the wind's howling. And, you know, and that's, to me, it's more important for the golf to be fun and, you know, keep it playable and, you know, keep keep giving the player a chance to do something good with their next shot, even if they can't, even if the shot that they're facing is impossible. You know, that's one of the funny things about golf is scratch players think they should never be in a position where they just face an impossible shot. You know, I can't. You know, I can't reach that green or I can't hold that green even though I can reach it. And they never think about, you know, like the average player faces that every day. <laughs> I agree. I'm guilty of that a little bit, right? Yeah. But you're correct. If you're a 20 handicap, it's it's a tough – It's a, it, every hole is going to be difficult from that standpoint. And, I, you know, I just – I've watched enough average golfers over my time, and I'm kind of – you know, for a golf course architect, I'm a crap player. You know, anything. You know, most golf course architects got to be architects because they were good golfers, and people turned to them to ask. You know, thought they knew more about what a good golf course would be. 
Whereas, you know, I was maybe a five or six handicap at my best, and now I'm, I think officially I'm a 12 or 13, but, but I played to it sporadically. Um, but, you know, I've, I, you know, I've played with all kinds of players. I've played with some, a bunch of the best players in the world, and I've played a lot with average golfers, and I want them all to enjoy the golf course. I was going to ask you on the greens uh, at, at, at the red course out there as well. Um, I've played Ballyneal, great golf course, you know, dramatic, right? Like dramatic greens and slopes. And the greens at, yep. at are, are more subtle at the red, yet difficult in the sense it's, how do I describe it? It's, it they're like a, it's subtle, but you got to really pay attention and really look at the topography to read the putts the right way. It doesn't. It's it kind of like sneaks up on you a little bit, and you know some of your greens that you designed have played have these great you know dramatic things, and sometimes it's subtle. How did you sort of uh, find that continuity at, at Dismal to make them not you know overly visually intimidating, but yet they're still they're still tough. You got to putt your ball well. You got to you know chipping. You have to really pay attention on that golf course to to make putts and, and get chips close and it's challenging from that standpoint even though visually it's not oh my god there's you know your your head starts spinning from seeing it right so you know i said earlier that i definitely wanted to make the golf course different from ballyneal and from sandhill and ballyneal as you say you know has some of the most difficult greens i've built you know partly that's the, you know they call that part that their little corner of the sandhills the chop hills and the contours are just really choppy and abrupt. So, so, you know, it was diff- it would have been pretty difficult at Ballyneal to build very many greens that are just sort of laying on the ground natural with not a lot going on. I mean, we have them tucked in corners where there was, you know, where there's sharp contours that, you know, feed the ball onto the green. In a lot of cases, we took the short grass way up the hills behind sometimes. And because we could do that and give people more than one way to get into a pin placement, you know, we figured we could have more contour in the greens. You know, sometimes you're looking at a shot there and think, God, I can't, you know, if I fly it up to that pin, it won't hold, you know, what can I do? And then if you look harder, you can see, well, you know, you can start at 10 yards left or 20 yards left and it'll come off that slope and, and stay on the green a lot easier. Um, so Dismal River, you know, somewhat gentler ground, bigger, bigger, longer slopes like I talked about. You know, there were more places that we that we could just kind of lay a green on the ground like Sandhills did. Um, it, you know, the character of it's a little different, but, but there's quite a few greens on the red course that are pretty much what was there when we started. That fifth, that fifth hole you talked about, that green is not changed very much. The par three, the third, the green did not change very much at all. The fourth green is entirely natural. Even that, that sweeping up little contour and the little tiny back tier, that was just that way. That's, you know, I fell in love with that almost right away. Um, so, you know, that was just the character of the ground and, you know, and the character of the ground fit with trying to make it different than Bally Neal. So I just ran with that. Whose idea was it to not have official tee boxes where you just sort of approximate it and go, um, I love that idea. It's it's just cool. It's different. How did that one come about? Well, I've done that a few times. Bally Neal is kind of famous for it. I mean, their, their members play play matches a lot where the the guys that the guys that win the last hole pick where to tee off from on the next <laughs> hole, <laughs> and they will use 
but you know they'll go two paces off the last green and just say let's go from here blind over the hill or or sometimes they'll go way up to the forward tee and say yeah let's, let's try it from here today um they never put tee markers out at all um you know most clubs that's just a bridge too far and you know most places don't want to do it because you've you know you've got everything with a rating and a slope and you want to post a score and you know golf in the sandhills just isn't quite like that from the beginning sandhills golf club they just they didn't get a rating and a slope for a long time they just said well the wind makes so much difference you know how can you you know you know you you play two two rounds in a row and one time it's dead calm and you shoot 70 and the next day you you're playing at a 40 mile an hour wind and you shoot 80 and you might have played better than the calm day when you shot 70. So so they kind of established, you know, we're not going to worry about that so much and we're not going to report scores. And that's the point where you can say, well, you know, now we don't really have to put out key markers either. You can just play the golf course from where you want. Such a cool way to do it. I absolutely love it. Um, switch gears here. New projects you have coming up uh, next couple of years or so or next year. Is there any one or two that are on your radar that you're just super excited to get started at and, and, and can't wait to break ground and start? Uh, build another course well we've had a you know we had like four projects we were supposed to be working on last year during the pandemic and only only the one of them that had already started um st patrick's in ireland you know went ahead and finished with some with some hiccups along the way but you know once you're committed once you're committed and you're tearing things up and building you kind of got to go forward and finish um so i'm really excited about that i haven't even i didn't get back to it last summer to see the last four or five fairways get grass so i'm super excited to go back and play it when i can but you know traveling internationally right now is kind of a crapshoot i don't know i don't know when i'll be able to get back over there but i'm you know the golf course will be ready it'll, it'll open this may um and you know, I mean, every every project we're signed up to do, I'm pretty excited about, or I wouldn't sign it sign it up at all at this point in my life. Um, we have another golf course to do in New Zealand, down the beach from Edie for the same client, but a resort course. Um, you know, New Zealand's one of my favorite places in the world, and I worked on two projects there, and they're currently rated the two best courses in New Zealand, so I've had some success there. Um, so I'm super excited to do another thing there and, you know, have my other golf course down four miles away that I can go play it a little bit while, while we're working. Um, we've got a new project in Northern California that's just been a nightmare of permitting. We're like four years in. There's lawsuits attached to it. I thought for sure we were going to be able to start it this year, and now it looks like who knows when we'll be able to start it. But it is one of the most dramatic sites that I've ever looked at. You know, it's up in wine country, and it's just, it's a huge piece of property. It's got some really dramatic elevations to it. I hope that thing gets going. Um, and then what am I leaving out? Oh, you know, we're, 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 we have started um, building the, the resurrection of the Lido course on Long Island uh, in Wisconsin at Sand Valley. Um, they've been moving dirt on it this winter, and... I'll get there starting in April to hopefully see some 
some stuff that looks pretty much like a golf hole in place and just do the finish work so we can get most of the holes built this summer. That's one of the most unique things I've read about of recreating it in a different area. Like that's got to be the coolest project to try to like bring this thing back to life, this long lost great golf course. And let's put it in Wisconsin and, you know, and, and, and see if we can, you know, redo this little masterpiece, right? I mean, how cool is that project? You know, in the one sense, I'm, I'm concerned that if it's really successful, that, you know, it will just launch the age of sequels in golf course design, <laughs> you know, because you can't, you know, but you know, the reason I think the Lido is a special case is because it was, you know, it was the original golf course was built by C.B. McDonald 100 years ago, and he built it out of kind of a swampy site on the little barrier strip between the Atlantic Ocean and the intercoastal on the south shore of Long Island. And the client said, hey, you know, this is this ground is nothing, but, you know, we have kind of an unlimited budget. And, you know, this is your chance to build some of those holes you've never found a good place for that you, you, you always wanted to build. And, you know, that was the hook that got McDonald interested to build it. But it was a completely built from scratch golf course. So, you know, it's not like what we're doing in Wisconsin is just stealing the topo from some other part of the world and trying to recreate that you know we're kind of doing the whole same process that mcdonald did 100 years ago and you know and i feel i feel a lot better about that than if somebody said hey you know can you build a knockoff version of augusta national yeah it's that i think it's just such a cool unique concept because like you said you're not taking something that's existing or it's like this long lost thing and like it'll be your interpretation and i read about the process to even get the information of what did this as best you guys could tell look like like the backstory to the project is just crazy i think it's going to be such a cool thing to see brought back to life and you know it's not that far from me so the cool part is i can drive up there and see it once it gets uh, up and going what what uh, year do you guys think that one is it next year maybe it might be ready to go, or is that process going to be a little tougher because you're kind of, like you said, building that thing, you know, resurrecting that course from, you know, from scratch, right. rebuilding every hole. Is it going to take a little bit more time for for building that course? Well, officially it won't open until 2023 because we can't, you know, we we started this winter it's a fairly short season, so we won't we won't be able to get all 18 holes seated this year. So that means some of it will be seeded in June of May or June of next year. And, you know, those halls would probably be ready by the fall of next year. So, but, you know, officially they'll wait till 2023 to open the whole thing. Although I suspect some people will play preview rounds before that, you know, but, but by the same token, you know, we're going to have, I think we'll have nine to 12 holes that are built in grass this year. And you you kind of have to plant the grass by the 1st of September to make sure you get good cover, you know, going into the winter. And so so some of those holes will be playable before the end of this year. Um, and certainly they'll all be in pretty good shape come next summer. Um, but, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to get early feedback on it. But I you know, think most people will, will just wait until the, the whole thing is ready, and that's, that's probably the spring of 23 or maybe late in the fall of 22. 
I was going to ask you on the confidential guide. Uh, when, you, when you wrote Volume 1 and, and where this journey has sort of gone with that, did, did you ever think it would have the influence? And, you know, it's sort of like over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20, I mean, like it's sort of like you want to see what a good golf course is. That that series will tell you what's going on. Did, did you ever think it would turn into what it's turned into at this point? You mean the original book from the East? So, yeah, just so the original the version of that book I wrote strictly for some of some of the people that had helped me get around and see courses when I was in my twenties. Because I would, you know, everybody knew I traveled a ton, and I had a decent eye for golf courses. And I'd seen, you know, I'd seen so much in the, you know, when I was in college and the year, my year overseas after college. You know, so I was like 26 or 27, and I'd seen like 700 golf courses. And you know, if if there was a list of the 100 best courses in the world, you know, I'd have seen 90 of them by then. Um, so, you know, I just people would call me and say, hey, "I'm going to Scotland. You know, what little out of the way course should I see?" And eventually, I thought, you know, I should just like write it down, like write little reviews of the golf courses that I've seen and in every one of them, good, bad, or indifferent and just tell the truth. You know, this is what I think of it. You decide whether you want to go there or not. Um, it's actually kind of, I've only told a couple of people, but there's, there's a, I don't know if you follow baseball, but there's a guy named Bill James who's a statistician and started analyzing baseball through statistics. And in the eighties, he wrote this book called the baseball abstract, which was a review of every player in the major leagues. <laughs> And, you know, the confidential guide was meant to be that um, kind of a review of all these golf courses. And, you know, the feedback on it was really positive because it was the only thing that my readers had seen that was just my, you know, dead honest opinions. Most of the stuff you read in the magazines is, you know, the, the only adjectives are good, better, and best because they don't want to offend anybody. And, you know, I wrote my book thinking I'm only sharing it with friends. I don't have to worry about that. So it was very cutting sometimes. And it was, you know, if I, if I thought something was overrated, I said so pointedly. And at the same time, it pointed out a bunch of cool little places that a lot of people had never heard of. Um, and while the, you know, the book is known for being controversial, uh, because it's the only book that you read, you ever read something negative about good golf courses. Um, you know, I still like to think it doesn't get enough credit for for pointing out literally hundreds of cool little golf courses that get more attention now because they were good and because they didn't used to make the top hundred list, but now they get some attention. My last question, which kind of relates to this, if you had you know, play two or three golf courses for the rest of your life. And just in your opinion, they're just architectural masterpieces or as close as you can get to perfect as, as you can get. What's the best two or three and what makes those, you know, so damn special? Oh, you know, so I, you know, I've played pretty much all the top 100 courses in the world. Um, you know, there's always like a couple I'm missing because they're new or there's some little remote corner, but I'm getting to all of those remote corners. So there's not much left out there. Um, but, you know, a lot of the rankings, of courses are like, 
you should see this sometime in your life if you're lucky enough that you could get on there. But with the question you asked is very different. You know, if you were only, if you could only have a couple of golf courses to play, you know, which ones would satisfy you on that level that you wouldn't miss going all, to all these other cool little places. And, you know, two or three is kind of hard for me. I've seen 1,500 golf courses. <laughs> and, you know, and honestly, if I was restricted to a couple of golf courses for the rest of my life, I would probably pick a couple of my own and try to have more chance to enjoy them because, you know, most people don't understand. I don't necessarily get that many chances to go play my own courses. A lot of them are a long way from home. And unless business has taken me back there, I only get to see them every once every few years, maybe. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to just toot my own horn on that. So for, you know, for, for most people, I would say, you know, it's silly to say Cypress Point. That would be everybody. I think that would be most people's answer. <laughs> and, you know, I've been lucky to be, play there a few times starting when I was 15 years old. That's one of the reasons I fell in love with this business to begin with. And I saw it again last year, and it, it's still right there for me. Is you know, it's the most beautiful golf course in the world, bar none. And um, and it's you know, it's a challenging golf course, but it's not like an overpowering golf course. And you know, that's really important to me. You know, I think there's a lot of great courses that just, or you know, Pine Valley is. I won't argue with it being the best golf course in the world, but it's way too hard for me to want to play it very often. You know, I totally respect it, but, you know, that would not be fun for me every day. So for me, it'd be Cypress Point, Royal Melbourne in Australia, uh, the old course at St. Andrews where I caddied for a couple months when I was a kid. Um, just they're interesting and they're different every day. And, and, they're, and they will never just beat you up. You know, you beat yourself up when you play them. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, the, I haven't played St. Andrews. I know there's a course that you love as well that I got fortunate enough to play, and I thought it was the same sort of ideas. It's just different every day and unique was Rye. Yeah, it wasn't overly hard, oh, yeah. and, but gosh, that golf course is so good. It's just so good and so much fun to play. Um, yeah, it's well, it's probably why I enjoy the red golf course that you built because I think uh, I, 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 I see the architecture that you build, and I at least as much as I'll ever understand it, I understand sort of why you're doing what you're doing, and, and, and I can't thank you enough for, A, the time today, but, B, and I mean this wholeheartedly, I'm so fortunate to get to play one of your golf courses as a member out there, and I get out there once a month, and I absolutely love it. And, you know, it's uh, I'm privileged to be able to do it, but it's also I want to say thank you because you, there's a lot of members out there who get to play that and truly enjoy uh, You know, it's a, it's a great golf course. You know, it's a it's fantastic. It's wonderful and you bring a lot of joy to my life by by making that i just want to say thanks for that it's truly it's truly an honor to get to play it so i appreciate that you know because i've i've like you know some of my courses are you know I've, I've been lucky in my career that some of my best courses are resort courses so everybody can play them and they get that much more attention but it's cool to design member courses too because you get much better feedback from the members. They've played the course a hundred times and they, they, they honestly know how it works instead of just making double bogey one time and thinking that's a bad hole. Yeah, it's it's the more I play it, the more I get the architecture, the better I get at strategy based on wind, and then the concept comes together, right? I can see what you're trying to want me to do 
or how I should maybe play it under these conditions. And figuring out that puzzle uh, with the conditions and the sand hole, the wind and the elements and all of it is endlessly fascinating because you never feel like you're playing the exact same golf course twice, and you're really not. Right. And that's the that's the part that I find so fascinating you know, about what you did at the Red Golf Course, that it's it's always exciting, it's always different, and it's fun to play it. So thank you for your work out there. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks for uh, being on with us, Tom. Greatly appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk soon.